0: Look into the Word. Our Father in heaven, again, uh, we are celebrating today your greatness. We are extolling you for the one who has shown uh, so much of your great compassions toward your people. Thank you, Lord, that you have not just uh, passed us on by and ignored our plight, ignored our weaknesses, ignored our needs, we thank you that your heart of compassion has turned toward us, and we thank you that we have received from you so much help. And Father, we know that your word is a, a critical part of that, that you've spoken to us, you have instructed us, you have encouraged us, you have uh, given us so many helpful um, corrections and as well as uh, ways of reproving us, Lord, in your word, and so we ask that your word would be... Uh, pointing us to Christ today, that we would, again, know you more as our God and understand your ways more clearly. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bible, if you will, to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to be looking at today. In the Pew Bible, it's page 579, and I'd just like to read uh, the first four verses there as we have an introductory uh, beginning here of this book. Perhaps before I read it, I would like to uh, have you, first of all, look in your table of contents in your Bible. Uh, yes, there is a table of contents in your Bible, believe it or not. Uh, some of you, and if you're using an electronic Bible, obviously uh, it doesn't work for you as well. There's probably some guide, and you just click on whatever you want to look at. But um, if you're looking at a Bible with a uh, book with pages, the table of contents you'll notice uh, in our English Bibles that Nehemiah is listed as the 16th book of 39 books that are found in the English version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And interestingly enough, that it can be somewhat confusing to us because it would appear as if many other books come after Nehemiah in terms of the time or the actual uh, sequence of things. But actually, the book of Nehemiah records events which took place after all the other events that are recorded in the Old Testament. Now, see, that's something that we normally would not pick up. But the happenings that we read about in this little book of Nehemiah, you can now find your way back to the book, the happenings that we read about there took place after the exodus, after the entrance into the land of promise, after the kingships of, of uh, Solomon, Saul and Solomon, and David, and after the destruction of the northern kingdom that came uh, at the hands of the Assyrians, it came, and also after the destruction of Jerusalem uh, through the Babylonians, and then after the period of this uh, long seventy-year captivity. And then Ezra comes back, he helps rebuild the temple, and then we finally get to Nehemiah. So it's at the end of all of the history recorded in the Old Testament. And so with that in mind, let's read now this account of beginning, opening words of Nehemiah. Beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened on the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, and that, by the way, means the capital of Persia, uh, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah, came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now as we jump into an H- Old Testament book, we raise the question of what benefit is it to read such obscure history, events that took place so long ago, prior to the coming of Christ. Well, let me remind you that Romans 15 tells us that the Old Testament was written for our instruction, for the help and benefit of believers in any age. And so there is much encouragement to be gained in this account of a godly leader named Nehemiah. And we are encouraged to see in this book, and we will see in the weeks to come, to see that God was at work in a situation in which people at that time, all the good times that they had ever known, were all now looked at through the rearview mirror of their life. Nothing before them at that moment was seemingly very optimistic. Nothing was seemingly going very well. Everything was rather discouraging. There was a, a, a time of probably great cynicism among the people of God. They were tempted to probably lose their zeal to try to do anything uh, to advance the things of God. And in this situation, God raises up a man named Nehemiah to provide direction, to provide a motivation and correction and also encouragement. And so Nehemiah, I believe, serves as a wonderful reminder that God is faithful that behind the scenes of what you read about with Nehemiah, I think we need to sort of always bear in mind that God is the one really being portrayed here. He is working through Nehemiah. It is God who is faithful. He's at work through his people and in the midst of his people, even though it may not seem that way at the time. And Nehemiah provides encouragement to many of us who might find ourselves disappointed. Those of us who perhaps are still trying to work through the disappointment of recent events in our church. Some of us may be tempted at moments like this to begin to sort of question or doubt God's goodness, to question or doubt God's faithfulness. And Nehemiah, in his confidence in God, which is so clear as you read him discuss and record for us various things he thought and did and said, the ways in which he acted, he had such practical reliance upon God in situations that were not very... Uh, optimistic. It, I think, can be served as a useful way of inspiring us to once again be reminded of the faithfulness of God and that we too are called to persevere and inspire us to keep serving Christ faithfully. So Nehemiah and his godly leadership is instructive for us because we face our own challenges in rebuilding, just as he and his generation face their own. And Nehemiah encourages us to see that what God can do through just one person. One person who earnestly seeks God in prayer. And that's one of the themes we're going to see in this book. There's a wonderful, practical, uh, lively expression of prayer on the part of Nehemiah throughout this whole uh, discourse. And we find that Nehemiah's one person is trusting God in the midst of things that are very difficult and discouraging. It's amazing as we look at a church, we face a number of challenges, we face a number of changes as a church, but we can find many helpful reminders in this passage of Scripture. The end of the Old Testament provides us with a powerful portrait of God. And that, to me, is one of the most important reminders in all of Scripture, is that God is revealing Himself in His Word. And in this portion of his word, we realize that God's faithfulness is great. Turn with me to what I think is one of the key verses of this book in chapter 9. Just turn over a couple pages or slip your little finger down your screen. Chapter 9, verse 33. This verse comes in the midst of a very long prayer of confession in which Nehemiah recounts a long list of history of what God has done, sort of listing a lot of the the, the prehistory of where he is to now, all that God has done in the background with his people. God has done so many wonderful and amazing things, and then he would always sort of digress and say, well, and yet the people turned away from him, yet they still failed to follow him, and just all of the things which people uh, turned away from the Lord. But look at what he says in verse 33. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. To me, that's one of the great, great verses of this book. If we learn anything through reading this account of Nehemiah, we don't want to just say, well, Nehemiah himself was, oh, such a great, perfect guy. No, no, he had his own problems. He admitted there he's acted wickedly himself. All of us do. But the confidence and the encouragement we derive from reading this book is to see the faithful God working in people who he's called, who have also failed, who also fall short, who are not perfect, but they themselves are so encouraged by the grace and mercy of God and what they've received in the gospel, as they understood it, that it translates into their desire to be faithful to that faithful God. And that's what we see in Nehemiah, that God is able to bring hope That he is able to rebuild when the bonds of fellowship and community have been weakened and torn asunder. It is God who can forge character traits and qualities among his people to knit them together in ways in which they are increasingly confident in his faithfulness. And God is able to bring renewal in his people. A God who is worthy of trust. A God who can be trusted in his providence, providence. And a God who his promises are always reliable no matter what's going on around us. So I'd like to look now just a couple of just brief observations overall, just catching the overall um, uh, overview of the book here. And I'd like to just look again at Nehemiah as a story of one godly man and his influence who chooses to deny himself and takes on great challenges for God and his kingdom. Let's look first of all at point number one. Nehemiah was a godly leader marked by faithfulness. A godly leader marked by faithfulness. If you look at the beginning of the book there, as he introduces himself in chapter 1, we read that Nehemiah had a quite unusual job. He was not a full-time pastor. He was not a a prophet. He was a person who identifies himself there. Employed by the ruler of Persia, he was actually a cupbearer. That was his job. You say, well, that doesn't sound very impressive to me. A cupbearer, what does it mean? He walks around with serving drinks on a, on a tray? You know, would you like to have a refill? Is that his job? Well, actually, it's far more significant than that. The reason we don't understand is because, again, we have so much distance between us and that culture. But the task of a cupbearer was to taste the wine or taste the food of the king, the person who has all of the political power, and to make sure that the king is not about to be poisoned by his enemies, by somebody who wants to get rid of him. And so when you think about that, if you are chapter 2, verse 1, and we read that uh, he was going to bring the wine there before the king, and he's the one who's going to serve it, it implies that he's always the one who's already pre-tasted it, and making sure that whatever he's tasted, the poison would kill him and not the king. Now, again, what's critical here is that here's a person who's working in close proximity to an extremely powerful person who sits in a position of the highest political power in the land, the king of Persia. And he interacts with this gentleman all the time. He's on the inside of this circle of influence of the people that this king allows and trusts to be in their inner circle fact that Nehemiah was placed in that position meant that he was highly esteemed and highly trusted, and it was highly unusual. Why? Because his background was he was one of the Jews who had been displaced years earlier by the Babylonians who took them out of their land there in Judah and Jerusalem and took them to Babylon, which now had been conquered by Persia. So Nehemiah was not a person who was your average run-of-the-will, run-of-the-mill Um, employee he was not a person who saw himself merely as a civil servant who's just serving his time counting the years down waiting for his retirement so he can go off and finally relax and have a life and be comfortable because what we see here is that he's employed as a cupbearer for the king of persia but there's a larger sense of his identity and what he's really living for it's not just that job but he's living for his ultimate boss as it were, and that was God. His life did not center around merely his career, his political career. His life centered on God. And that's the only way to make sense of the early verses that we read there in chapter 1. When he hears news of his fellow Jews and what was going on back in Jerusalem, his heart is drawn toward that because he understands that that's a very sad commentary on what is an important agenda for God. And so I would say, first of all, then, as we look at these things about Nehemiah, his responses of his heart are the overflow of a heart that feared God. He didn't just live for, number one, his job. He really feared God. He respected God. If you look at chapter 5, verse 15, I'll just try to show you an example of this. 5.15 Here he tries to distinguish himself from doing what other people did in his time. Uh, They were a little bit loose with how they had their expenditure and the amount of money they were using, perhaps in their office, and privileges that they may have enjoyed as politically connected people. And so he's contrasting himself from people like that. And he says at the end of verse 15, I didn't do what those people did. He says, I did not do so because of the fear of God. Now, he's not talking about shaking in his boots fear. He's talking about a reverence for God, of respecting God, of being a person who understands how important it is to humble himself before God, who really is the one who reigns and rules over everything. It's not the king of Persia, it's God. And so his perspective was such that early on in his account here in the book of Nehemiah, he indicates that he's willing to take risks for the sake of God. Risks to his own political aspirations or his career or security, if you will, financial security. He's willing to take risks because he believes that, again, God is the one who reigns supreme, and he therefore is humbling himself under his reign. So he approaches the king and tries to get permission to get involved in these matters that had to do with the people of Israel. He did not shy away from stepping out of of this kind of, uh, you know, the crowd. He could have just kept doing what he was doing, fitting in with all of the culture that he had become a part of. Uh, But he kept his devotion to God as a priority in his life. He was one of those who, if you read in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, we delight in revering God's name. Now, before I move on, I just want to again say, what a reminder that is for you and me that God uses ordinary people. He uses people who are bankers or housewives or teachers or nurses or any kind of put-in-the-blank students, whatever kind of involvement you have and whatever role you have in life, retired people. He uses all kinds of ordinary people to accomplish His work. And the encouragement of this is, again, God is faithful. He doesn't wait for perfect people in order to get things done in his kingdom. He brings imperfect people into his kingdom through his grace and through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says, here, I'm going to incorporate you into what I'm doing in this world so that people might appreciate, again, the greatness of his mercy and grace working in those lives. It is Nehemiah and his motivation that didn't just center around his own life, his own comforts, his own advancement in his career. He showed a heart that was willing to advance God's kingdom. He didn't just treasure all the trappings of, of his position, of worldly position of power, but he's marching to a different drumbeat. Isn't that what the church does? We are ordinary people with various callings and various vocations, but ultimately we are We are people who understand there's a king who rules and reigns over everything, and we're ultimately serving him in whatever role, whatever assignment we have in life. And so here is Nehemiah. His loyalties were with God in his kingdom, and his zeal came from not a sense of obligation. Nobody was trying to make him feel guilty for just sitting there and doing nothing. His motivations were out of a sense of love and appreciation for God. And that comes through so clearly as you read through the book and read his prayers. He is so amazed by God's grace and compassion shown to him time and time and time again. So his heart, I think, was turned toward God and his kingdom because he was so confident of the greatness and awesomeness of his God. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. guess what? That's a wrong verse. (laughs) I don't know what that was referring to. Anyway, he does mention there, uh, he talks about the greatness and awesomeness of God. Um, Here's what I want to do. One of the things I think we learn from Nehemiah is, is that when he comes against problems and challenges and difficulties, his heart is engaged with God and he immediately begins to pray about those situations. He prays about his concerns. He prays about things that trouble him and and that cause him great disappointment. And so I would like to, again, just remind us here of God uses ordinary people who are in communion with an extraordinary God. And what a great reminder that is for you and for me. That as we read this book, we shouldn't walk away saying, oh, look at Nehemiah, I want to be a Nehemiah. No, you should look and say, Nehemiah understood the greatness of God and look how it impacted his life. His life was totally put into a new dimension, a new, a new plane, a new order, a new direction of his life. Why? Because he was so amazed and lived with a sense of appreciation of God. It affected what he really was longing for, to live to please the Lord. Secondly, about another observation by Nehemiah, some people associate him with this devotion to Building a wall. How many of you ever built a wall out of stones? Very few of us. We can't even relate to this, can we? I mean, imagine handling rocks all day. That sounds real thrilling, huh? How about heavy rocks? How about figuring out how to bring heavy rocks and then make them fit together somehow in some wall? And, and you've got to get working with all these people to coordinate all that and get everybody to do it the same way and keep it straight and all those things. It doesn't sound like a very exciting project to me. And it sounds sort of, well, I guess you could say he had a rock festival. You know, that's pretty much uh, what, what his life was spent with. But, you know, that, I want to go beyond that because I think if you read the book and that's all you think about is they rebuilt this wall, you've missed one of the key points here. If you turn to chapter 3, for example, you, you sense that Nehemiah's heart is more than just rocks and mortar and getting things to fit together and build some huge, uh, big uh, barrier between them and, and, and the people on the outside, you realize that because his heart is devoted to God, Nehemiah also, as an overflow of that, he was then inclined to have a heart for the people around him. It wasn't just a project. It was the people that he was very much in tune with and connecting with and ministering with. And so you'll notice there in chapter 3 he, have these, he has these amazing glimpses of this sense of com- camaraderie, of community that he's beginning to build because you get the sense that for the longest time everybody was off doing their own thing. Everybody was sort of living in their own little niche doing their own little thing. Everybody was dealing with all of the, the disaster. Nothing was in its place. Nothing was working the right way. And so he comes on the scene and his point is to draw people together and to begin to encourage them to work alongside of each other. You'll notice in chapter 3, I don't have time to go through it all, but as you read through that whole chapter, he gives credit where credit is due. He's not here tooting his own horn. He's acknowledging the role of different people doing what they could do on the wall in their particular area, different people serving, different people offering their gifts, different people making their contributions. He gives the credit to all of those involved. As one who spent many years working in the halls of privilege and power in the palace in Persia, he could have sat back and said, well, you know, I don't need to lift my finger here. You people need to, you know, he could have just talked down to them. But he came down onto their level and began to sort of say, let's do this together. It's an amazing sense of compassionate heart that he has in chapter 5 because he realizes that not only was he encouraging people to get involved, but he was also saying there's some things that are not right here. You're not treating each other correctly and some of you have got a heart that's hardened toward others in not being compassionate toward those in need among your own people. And he speaks out for that, for the widows and indeed for those who are in tremendous need, the poor, who are being exploited. One of the things I did when I was gone was read some books that I've been wanting to read. And one of them was a book that my wife uh, gave me from uh, she had received from someone associated with Stony Brook School years ago, former headmaster actually, uh, called Peril at Sea. It was the true story of um, a family coming back from Africa uh, in 1942, on a freighter a freighter ship from South America coming back up to the United States. And in the ocean there in the Atlantic Ocean, were all sorts of German U boats, p- submarines, basically. And they were firing torpedoes on freight ships, or passenger liners, non military battleships, it was they were just taking those ships down. And so anyway, the story goes in which they, uh, a torpedo hits the ship, a second one hits and b- down they go. And uh, this family coming back is just a widow. It's a woman with her two children. And anyway, it's a long story. And they get on this little raft that was part of the ship. And it's like 19 or 18 of them stuck on this little raft. And what was interesting about this whole account is their interaction with each other. There are certain rations that have been stored away for the purpose of helping them survive if this were to take place. And so they have certain cans of nasty food that they can daily eat and graham crackers and different things that have been uh, given to them. And they all agreed, we're going to ration it together, we're going to cooperate, work together, and only one person gets one ration every day as we go around. And in the midst of all that, this missionary woman, the mother of the, the gentleman that wrote the book, he was a boy at the time, she is incredibly compassionate towards some of the salty language. Uh, staff and guys who worked on the the ship hands on the ship. I mean, they they could they're mocking her, they're making fun of her. And here she is praying for them, praying with her children, showing tender care for them. Her heart of compassion just was incredibly influential in the lives of these gentlemen, as she showed she was not there living for herself as so many others tended to do. She was a person who had such interest and concern about everybody on that raft in a wonderfully powerful influential way and that's sort of what i see happening here with nehemiah his compassion for other people was a huge blessing to all those who interacted with him another thing that's helpful interesting here is that the knowledge that nehemiah had of god was not just theoretical but it was personal he didn't just know facts about god he knew god there's a big difference there's a big difference You can know that there is a God and go through your daily life and have nothing to do with him, but know he's there. Or you can be a person who knows God about him in terms of what he's like, but then commune with him and interact with him and turn to him and learn from him and submit to him and yield to him. And so here is is Nehemiah in his response to what's going on there. He knows that God is a God who's holy comes through very clearly in the way he deals with God, God's hatred of sin. And so we have Nehemiah not hiding behind excuses, not hiding behind the failings of other people. And There are many failings that have preceded Nehemiah, believe me. There are many people who have dropped the ball, many people who goofed up, many people who have gone astray and caused serious problems. And Nehemiah is very much aware of that. But he doesn't He doesn't focus on them so much as he focuses on us. He includes himself as part of the problem. And in his confession of sin in chapter 9, it's an amazing, long, long confession of sin. He identifies himself with them. It's not just they. He says, and us. I'm one of them. Rather than looking down on other people and magnifying their faults, Nehemiah does not hesitate to admit his own need for God's mercy, his own needs for God's grace. Now, that's a powerful influence of someone who knows God is acknowledging that they need God's grace and mercy just like everybody else. And I don't know about you, but I find myself throughout every day, I find myself sensing all the more I desperately need God's grace and mercy to deal with all of the brokenness, all the sin and selfishness, all the corruption in my own heart. I desperately need His grace. I desperately need his mercy. And Nehemiah reminds us of that. He doesn't see sin as trivial and unimportant. He knew God, but he also knew God as one who was merciful. Look at chapter 9, if you will. Take a second, turn to chapter 9. Verse 32. Sorry, verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, 931, you did not make an end of them or forsake these people that he called to himself who have messed up again and again. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. And that same theme, I've, I've taken my Bible and I've underlined compassion and his graciousness throughout that confession. It is like a calm, it's like a strong theme repeated again and again and again. If you know God, then you know how gracious he is as you think about his whole plan of redemption, as you think about his whole dealing with sinners like you and me. It's all about his compassion and something that brings us to celebrate our faithful God every single day. Lastly, thing I want to point out about Nehemiah before we conclude with him and really focus on the God who is faithful, I want to just talk about he didn't just approach on, he didn't live his life just to be a self-fulfilled person. He lived a life of humility. Nehemiah was a humble man a humble man before God and before his peers. You don't always find people like that, particularly people who are highly successful, people who have positions of power, people who have uh, privilege. They can easily begin to get a person which they sort of look down on other people, see themselves in a different category. And Jesus warned about that. He says, listen, whenever you're thinking about this idea of serving in leadership, he says, don't you be like the pagans, don't you be like Gentiles, who just love to have a number of people, the more and more people who have to report to them and say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. That's not what it's all about, he says. If you want to be great, he says, you wish to become great, you must become your servant. Whoever wishes to be first must be the slave of all, Jesus said. And so we find Nehemiah here in this text, in the book of Nehemiah, he is not using people, but he joins in beside them, working alongside them, Seeking to motivate them, seeking to organize them so that they might enjoy the benefits of the wall where they live. And godly leaders will conduct themselves in such a way that they are called, those who are called to submit to them, when they're confident that they care about the people under them, the people who are called to report to them, they're more likely to submit. And again, I would just remind those of us as husbands it's not our role to say, You wife, submit as it is for us to say, follow me as I follow Christ. As I learn to submit to Christ, as I learn to take care of my wife, make sure that her needs are being met, as I'm in tune with her, as I show that I have the love for her as Christ did for the church, the, the likelihood of her being able and willing to submit is all the more increased and all the more appropriate as we follow biblical leadership rather than worldly leadership. And Nehemiah doesn't pass the buck he helps to bear the load. And he admits whenever there's a success, whenever things went well, look at this. Chapter 2, verse 12. Let's look at that. Chapter 2, verse 12. One of the key challenges for you is when people praise you or when something goes well, how do you respond? Does it just feel like, oh, I feel like I'm this is the most exciting thing, and I feel like I'm finally arrived? Or do you say, I immediately want to turn and give glory to God. And look what he does in chapter 2, verse 12. Um, man, I got the wrong verse again. What in the world? All right, let me, check seven. Let me try it one more time. This is what happens when I go on vacation. I, I just, like, get the wrong verses. Um, oh, here it is. Chapter 6, verse 15. Sorry. My fault. They complete the wall, chapter 6. At the end, he says, the wall was completed. It took them 52 days. And he says, our enemies realize that this work had been done with the help of our God. He didn't just sit there and say, these people realize we are really smart and we look at how clever we were. He says, look what he admits and knows that it's clear that they made uh, God the one who was clearly Acknowledged as giving them success. He does not hesitate to openly profess that whatever success he achieved, he gave credit to where credit was due. It was with God. And that's why Matthew Henry says of Nehemiah that Nehemiah is not just a record of the works of Nehemiah's hands, being a builder, but the inner workings of his heart. And so, one of the things I'm praying for as we face these challenging days as a church is that God will continue to work in our hearts to increase our faith in God, to increase our sense of God's being involved in every aspect of life. We're living under His kingship in every component of life, and that we're attuned with what God wants to see accomplished in life and willing to take risks for that to happen. And Therefore, His faithfulness is resulting in us being more willing to align ourselves more and more with His agenda. Uh, there's much more I could say about that, but I just want to move my second point. This is really the main point and really should have been the only point, but uh, I had to give a little bit of background to the book. <clears throat> but point number two is the faithfulness of Nehemiah's God. The faithfulness of Nehemiah's God. The book, again, is not designed for us to focus primarily on the achievements of this one man, Nehemiah, rebuilding this wall, making the thing connect all over, and rebuilding the gates and making sure that <clears throat> everything was secure again. because we know in Luke chapter 24 that the Old Testament was written in such a way as to give us a picture and portrait of Christ. And so as we're reading through this passage, we're looking for Christ. We're looking for what it reveals about God. And notice that Nehemiah's confidence in the faithfulness of God propelled him. It motivated him to move himself out there as a hard work, managing people, motivating people, discipling people, which oftentimes was difficult. He had to confront some people. He had to deal with some things that were not easy to deal with. But his confidence was that God would make his impact and accomplish his purposes. And so Nehemiah's confidence was anchored to the character of God. The character of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. I think I've got the right verses this time. When Nehemiah heard the words about the diff- disappointing report about what's going on in Jerusalem, broken down walls, people living there in, in shame. and He says, it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And notice verse 5. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his, love, keep his commandments. So he continues with his prayer. He continues with that theme of God's compassion, of God responding to his people in need. He is attuned to them. He's willing to give to them. And therefore, Nehemiah knows firsthand the love, the mercy, and grace of God. And let me just say this. Excuse me, I'm having a hard time here. As I've thought about this, I've concluded that one of the greatest opportunities that you and I have to learn to truly know God and to appreciate His character is not when things are going great. It's not when the wind is blowing in your face and there's no problems and everything is fit together and all of your life is now like a puzzle piece. Everything's together and everything's working just like clockwork. <clears throat> that's not the time you're likely to get to know god deeply in terms of his character the time that you will most are more likely to truly know the character and appreciate the character of god is when you have come to the end of yourself and you're no longer thinking that you are capable and successful and and have the abilities to do whatever you're asked to do. but it's when you're desperate and you're calling out to god saying I am aware of my weakness, I'm aware of my sin, I'm aware of my failings, I'm aware of my, my struggles, I'm aware of how I don't have the power to continue to do what I need to do. That's when you're going to now begin to understand the true character of God. Think about it. Isn't that what Paul learned? Paul's got a thorn in his side. Don't think now rose thorn, like a rose bush. Think stake, as in a, stake, a tent stake, in his side tremendously painful, difficult trial. I think it was some of the false teachers in Corinth. Other people think it's a health thing, whatever. He's crying out to God once, twice, three times. Take it away. What does God say? I'm going to give you all sufficient grace for your what? Weaknesses. In your weaknesses, you're going to learn about my grace. It was Peter in his failings who, who uh, you know, curses and says, oh, I don't know this Jesus. He's dismissing him three times. He learns the grace of God, forgiveness of God firsthand as he cleanses him, washes him, which he refused to do early on, if you recall, when Jesus was washing feet. It's Moses who failed, who learns to say what? God's going to take me and make him my, the spokesperson? No, God, I got 16 excuses. No, that's where he learns to know and deal with the true character of God. It's Israel who, what, was hungering and thirsting. They learned to understand that God was the provider. So I would just say that's one of the sub-themes of this book is that we learn to know the character of God in the midst of times in which we feel like we desperately need Him. We are desperately in need of Him. Now you say, well, how did He... Find and develop the sense of confidence in the faithfulness of God brings me to my final point, so stay with me here. How do we develop a confidence in God and how do we know His character? Because, let's be honest, when trials come and difficulties are there, it's easy to draw all the wrong conclusions about God. God, you don't care about me. You've let this go on and on and on. I'm still stuck in the mess. It's still here. I've been crying out to you. You do nothing. And so you begin to make your own conclusions about God if you're left to yourself. And this is why, again, the critical point here that I think is one of the uh, central points of the book, one of the highlights of one of the, the areas of the book that is so um, incredibly important, is that Nehemiah's heart and confidence in God's faithfulness was shaped and molded and forged through his reading and rereading of the Word of God. Because what else is going to do that? You don't just wait for things to pop in your head. You read the Word. And so if you look at Nehemiah, he has been surrounded by pagan idolatry, serving there in Susa, you know, Persia. He's been away from all of his Jewish uh, teaching for many years, although he got it when he was young. But here he is. he, He doesn't have much to fall back on except what he's been taught in the Word. And it's his confidence in the Scriptures that I believe is, is, uh, is what it made it such a huge difference. And so these walls that had crumbled around Jerusalem, they were a testimony to the failures of so many people, so many generations prior to the time of Nehemiah. And so people, if you're looking to build your faith on other people, you're going to be very disappointed. You're going to find yourself saying, what, what, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, they, they've, they've, they've uh, dropped the ball, they've abandoned you, they've break their word, whatever. you tempted to become cynical and distrustful. What is it that gives you a confidence in the faithfulness of God? And again, I say to you, it is the Scriptures. One of the things that we did uh, while in Maine is we uh, went to one of their many, many, many lighthouses. They have tons of them up there because it's all rocky coasts. And we went to Porthead, Port Portland. Uh, head lighthouse, very impressive, very scenic. And while there, uh, they had a rock sitting in front of, or in, uh, between the lighthouse and the ocean, is a rock They painted the words, um, the name of a ship, Annie McGuire was the name of a ship, that crashed there Christmas Eve, 1886. And sure enough, in the gift shop, they have a photograph of it. And here's this wooden ship. High masts crashed up sideways against this rock. And I thought to myself, what was the backstory behind it? I don't know the answer, so I can't give you the full story. But I'm wondering, did somebody just discount the, the light from the lighthouse? Did somebody fail to shine the light that night? I mean, what is it that was the backstory? But here's my point. It's so important that we keep understanding that the light is meant to be a message of truth. Warning, danger, there's land ahead. Avoid this. And when you fail to listen to it, you get easily pushed off course. You easily get crash land into the rocks of disaster. And so I'm convinced that Nehemiah learned to trust God by hearing again and again the gracious dealings of the people of God through Israel for all those generations. Faith comes by hearing, Romans says, and hearing through the word about Christ. So what happens then? If you look at chapter um, 8, one of the great ways in which uh, the story of this particular book is built around is that he gathers all the people together and they have a convocation, they have a gathering in which they're going to hear the word of God read hour after hour and they're going to stand, listen to it and then have it explained to them and go back and keep hearing about what God has done so that people might understand the faithfulness and greatness of their God. It's a beautiful thing. The warrior, as he has them, he builds a platform. You know, almost like this kind of setting where the person's up here and they're talking and everybody's listening and they have a long, long, long time of hearing. And the word just kept being read. Word just kept being read. Here's my point. I believe that Nehemiah realized in order to build strong believers around him, They had to make sure the scriptures were being clearly taught to all the age groups, to the next generation, so that they might know God and not draw the wrong conclusions based on difficulties, problems, failings of other people in the past so that they might know the faithfulness of God. And those who know God will love the Word of God. And they will love to share it with other people. And I hope and pray that will always be the passion of our church is to love God, love and appreciate his word, and share that word among ourselves and among people who don't yet know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're the God who uses ordinary people and that you as the extraordinary God remain full of compassion toward us some of the brokenness that some of us are dealing with. Some of us, Lord, are dealing with brokenness in our families, relationships in our own families that are difficult, that have gone sour, that have been ended in ways that were quite painful. Others of us, Lord, are dealing with relationships that have soured here in our own church in different ways. And some of us, Lord, are dealing with challenges at our workplace or at school brokenness, different parts of our lives that are not working the way that we know you intended them things to do. So, we, Father, we pray that you might help us to see that you are faithful in the midst of these situations. We pray that you might help us to draw close to you, help us, Lord, to continue to learn and to know you through your word, to treasure the fact that you are faithful and trustworthy, you keep your promises, generation after generation after generation. Help us, Father, to find hope in Christ, His mercy, His grace, His truth to guide us, to encourage us, and to steer us away from the rocks of foolishness and man's wisdom. So we pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work in our own midst in rebuilding what needs to be rebuilt. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.